Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Micah chapter 2. Now, uh, last week when we started the book of Micah, um, I shared that uh, Micah's name means who is like God, and really that is the theme of the book. And uh, this morning, it's really the second part of the first major theme in the book of Micah, and that is who is like God proclaiming judgment against his people. Nobody likes to hear judgment, but that's what chapter 1 was all about. In fact, chapter 1 dealt with the laws of the first tablet of the Ten Commandments. If you know, there's, there's the two tablets of the commandments, and the first tablet had all the, the laws that dealt with man's relationship to God. And uh, we talked about that in chapter 1 because that was God's first issue with, the, with the, uh, the people of Israel, the northern ten tribes, was that they had departed from God. They had forsaken him and their relationship to God. And so the first chapter dealt with the laws of the first tablet. Chapters 2 and 3 that we're going to look at this morning deal with the laws of the second tablet of the Ten Commandments, and that is our relationship to our fellow man, to our neighbor. You know, in their hearts and in their actions, the people had turned away from the Lord and had sinned against him. And really, when anybody turns away from the Lord, it's inevitable that they were also going to sin against their neighbors. It's just, it's just, a, it's a, it's a progression, a, a negative progression that happens. I don't know how many of you know who Richard Wormbrand is, but he was a Romanian pastor, a Lutheran pastor who was uh, imprisoned during World War II. The Nazis had taken uh, Pastor Wormbrand and they had imprisoned him. And uh, he thought that was bad. But after the end of World War II, the communists took control of Romania. And uh, then again, he was put into prison under the communist rule. And he said that he thought that the Nazis were bad. He said the communists were much, much worse. And uh, some of what he experienced in prison, um, and Teresa and I had met him in person and, and shared with, or he sh- you know, shared at our church we used to go to. And I don't know if it was then or if it's in his book. He, he wrote a book called Tortured for Christ. I guarantee if you read that, it'll really challenge you and it'll really encourage you. But um, some of what he experienced in communist prisons was so debasing, so inhumane, that he couldn't even write about it in his book. He even couldn't share it when he would go to churches sharing about what he went through. And what he had said was, when a people remove God from their society, as communist Romania had done, there's no end to the depth of evil that man will inflict upon his neighbor. And that's really true. And, you know, I look at our society, and it concerns me, when we see that our society is steadily, steadily removing any mention of God, any, any form, you know, they're rewriting the history of the pilgrims and how our nation was founded and everything. They're trying to remove God from our society. And as a result of that, there's going to be no end to the depth of evil that men are going to inflict on one another here in this country as well. It's, it's going to happen. So Michael, uh, Michael, Micah chapter 2 deals with, and chapter 3 deals with man's relationship to his neighbor. And so beginning in verse 1, it says, Woe to those who devise iniquity and work out evil on their beds. At morning light they practice it because it is in their power of their hand. They covet fields and take them by violence, also houses and seize them. So they oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. 
And if you're familiar with some of the laws on the second tablet of the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. And that is exactly what they had done here in the northern kingdom of Israel. It's exactly what they were doing. They had coveted their neighbor's fields, so they took them by violence. They coveted their neighbor's house, and so they seized them. And not only did they do those things, but they laid awake at night plotting and premeditating how they were going to steal from their neighbors. And then in the morning, they would carry it out. They would practice what they had premeditated. Now, they, had, they premeditated evil, but what they should have been doing was premeditating righteousness. David wrote about it in Psalm 63, verse 5. He says, My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. Psalm 119, one of, uh, excellent psalm. Psalm 119, verse 55. It says, I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and I keep your law. Meditating on the Lord, meditating on righteousness, premeditating righteousness rather than premeditating evil. But that's what the people were doing here. Verse 3, therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks, nor shall you walk haughtily, for this is an evil time. The family here that God is, was against, is, is, it's the ten tribes uh, of the northern kingdom of Israel. And since they had planned and then executed wickedness against their fellow Hebrews, God now is planning retribution against them. And it's a disaster that they're not going to be able to extricate themselves from. They were now walking in pride, but then when, when, when disaster strikes, they're going to be humbled. Verse 5, or 4, excuse me. In that day, one shall take up a proverb against you, and lament with a bitter lamentation, saying, We are utterly destroyed. He has changed the heritage of my people, how he has removed it from me. To a turncoat he has divided our fields. Therefore will you, you will have no one to determine boundaries by lot in the assembly of the Lord. A turncoat. That's not a word I hadn't heard in, in a long time, but it, really, it re- basically refers to a rebel or an apostate. Now, in the context of this passage... Of this verse, I think it's referring to someone who's not of the Jewish faith. In other words, a Gentile of a foreign language that would come and would take over their land, basically, invade their land. Um, the patriotic northern kingdom, and they were patriotic, they would be dismayed when foreigners took over and divided up their land, their national heritage. You know, one of the blessings of the Lord to the nation of Israel, to the children of Israel, was the land itself, the land of Canaan. God had dispossessed all these wicked nations. For 400 years, these nations had done the most abominable evil to one another. They had been so, it was so bad, and so God dispossessed them from the land and gave the land to the children of Israel as a possession to the 12 tribes of Israel. But with giving them that land, God also warned the children of Israel that if they forsook him, He would dispossess them, just like he had dispossessed the nations before them. Verse 6, Do not prattle, you say to those who prophesy, so they shall not prophesy to you. 
They shall not return insult for insult. I like how another translation says this. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. What, what this verse is saying is they were preaching to Micah, basically saying, don't preach at me. Don't tell us about you know, all the wicked stuff that's going to happen, all the, all the disasters that gonna, that's going to strike us. You know, it reminds me of those who preach the loudest about intolerance in our society. Frequently, they're the most intolerant against the ones that they, that anyone that comes against them, they're, they're totally intolerant against people. Verse 7, Micah's response to him, to those trying to silence him, look at that. Verse 7, you who are named the house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord restricted? Are these his doings? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? Micah was boldly proclaiming his words are inspired by the Holy Spirit. And he's basically saying to them, is the Holy Spirit only restricted to comforting? Does he, not only also, does he not also convict of sin? You know, the Bible says God's word is a fire. And a fire can do two things. A fire can provide warmth and comfort. But it can also burn and purify. It just depends on where you are spiritually in relation to God's word. It's either going to burn you or it's going to comfort you. Verse 8. Lately, my people have risen up as an enemy. You pull off the robe with the garment from those who trust you as they pass by like men returned from war. The women of my people you cast out from their pleasant houses. From their children you have taken away my glory forever. See, the people here were treating each other just like they were an invading army, basically pillaging and taking anything that they wanted, anything in their path they were just taking for themselves. Not only were they taking the people's outer cloaks, but they were stripping them down to nothing. So basically, it's what, they're saying, what Micah is saying, you're, just, you're taking everything from these people. And you know, in most civil societies, the most defenseless of citizens, they're usually spared the violence, usually, not always. But these guys had sunk so low, even defenseless women and children were victims. You know, I, I, I see a, when I read this scriptures, I see a parallel to our society. I don't know how many of you heard this back in a month ago, roughly in November, in Chicago. There was a nine-year-old boy walking home from school, and some guys lured him into a back alley, and they executed the, this nine-year-old boy. They shot him in the head. Why? Because they thought that his dad, evidently, I'm not sure if he was, but they thought that his dad was a member of a rival gang. And so even, even among gangs, it was like that, that's a new low that's happened now. But you see, that's what's happening in our society. And that's, what hap- was, that's the kind of thing that was happening here in the northern kingdom of Israel. Verse 10, Arise and depart, for this is not your rest. Because it is defiled, it shall destroy, yes, with utter destruction. If a man should walk in a false spirit and speak a lie, saying, I will prophesy to you of wine and drink, even he would be the prattler of his people. That word prattler basically means to prophesy or could be translated preach. Um, God had delivered the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and he had given them this land as an inheritance and a place of rest, because they were slaves before in, in bondage in Egypt, and God gave them this land for rest. But because of their sin, they're now going to be driven from the land. 
And Micah says here, if someone comes to you prophesying peace and prosperity, he's a false prophet. It's interesting at this point, as we move on to verse 12, God's telling the northern tribes they're going into captivity. It's going to happen. You can't extricate yourself from them. Um, But now in verse 12, he starts speaking about their eventual deliverance from captivity. And it's interesting because the false prophets, they were speaking peace and prosperity to the people while they were still in their sin. And that was the problem. They were still in their sin, and they're saying, oh, you know, God loves you. He's, he's never going to drive us out of the land. We're his people. And they were giving them false hope, these people who were steeped in sin. And here in verse 12 now, God is now going to start speaking peace to his people. But the difference is, it's after their sin has been dealt with, after they have gone under God's judgment and gone into captivity. Verse 12. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep of the fold, like a flock in the midst of their pasture. They shall make a loud noise because of so many people. You see the picture, God's talking about sheep and lambs and pasturing. I mean, he loves his people. Even though he's hating their sin and he's judging them for it, he loves them. And it says here, verse 12, it literally, it's gathering, I will gather all of you, Jacob. Gathering, I will gather the remnant of Israel. That gathering, I will gather, it's emphatic. It's basically the Hebrew way of saying God is promising to restore the remnant of Israel from captivity. You know what's interesting? Um, throughout the Bible, God always reserves a remnant of people for himself. You can read it throughout the Old Testament, even in the New Testament. Well, who are the remnant of Israel? Well, in Elijah's day, there were 7,000 people in Israel who had not bowed the knee to Baal. In Isaiah 10.20, there are Jews who no longer depended on foreign armies to protect them, but faithfully depended on the Lord alone. Many times, it's referring to the remnant of Jews in the last days. They're going to call upon the Lord to save, save them, as it says in Joel 2.32, and Paul talks about it in Romans 11. There's going to be a remnant in the last days of Jews that are going to recognize Jesus as their Savior, and they're going to turn to him. The word remnant, it literally means a residue or a remainder. And, you know, the very definition implies that they are always few in relation to the whole. There's a few that are left over. There are a few that remain. Paul wrote this in 1 Timothy 4.1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. And in his letter to the second letter to the Thessalonians, he writes this in 2 verse 3. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. In both places there, Paul is prophesying that there's going to be in the last days a falling away, a departing of the faith, a departing from the faith among believers. And it's prior to the events of the day of the Lord. Uh, There's going to be a remnant of faithful believers left. How close are we to the falling away prophesied by Paul? I want to read this article to you. It says, the percentage of Christians in U.S. steadily declining. Three-quarters 
of Americans identify with a Christian religion down 5% from the number who did so eight years ago. He goes on to say, 20% of Americans have no formal religious identification, up 5% from 2008. It says, the general trends in the data over this eight-year period are clear. As the percentage of Americans identifying with the Christian religion has decreased, the percentage with no formal religions, religious identification has increased. According to Gallup, the percentage of Christians is highest among older people, above 80%, and gets smaller with each progressively younger age group. 62% of those 18 to 24 say they're Christian, while 31% say they have no religion um, at all. And, oh, that's something else. <laughs> um, so what it's basically saying is each generation is drifting further and further away from the Lord. In our country here, the statistics show. You know, why, we, why do we pray for the kids? Man, it's such a vital ministry to raise up another generation of men and women that love Jesus Christ. And, and, and so how close are we to the falling away? I, I don't know, but I think we're seeing a trend towards that. You know, when I look at all these different articles and I read my Bible, it, it really just tells me that Jesus is coming back soon. I mean, I'm excited about it. I'm sad to see some of this stuff, but it also encourages me that, Lord, you are returning soon, just as you said you were. But, you know, it's a warning for you and I as well. Because in Hebrews 3.12, we're warned this, Brethren, or excuse me, beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. And so as you and I see that day approaching, man, we're supposed to encourage one another and we're supposed to be careful that we don't be one of those that depart from the Lord. So are you one of the remnant today? I hope you are. I hope, I hope all of us are. Verse 13. The one who breaks open will come up before them. They will break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. Their king will pass before them with the Lord at their head. I love that verse. The one who breaks open will come up before them. That word breaks, it's a verb meaning to break out, to break down, to burst forth. And what it's basically prophesying is there would be one who would burst forth before them, and then they're going to burst forth. I don't know if you're catching that, but that is a beautiful prophecy that has its ultimate fulfillment in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because the Bible calls him the firstborn from among the dead. He's the first one to burst forth into resurrection life. And you know, I've done a lot of funerals. And, and when, I, when I do a funeral for a believer, it's, it's such a comfort. You know, I love sharing the scriptures with Christians because it's a hope and comfort of every believer in Christ. As Jesus Christ burst forth into resurrection life, we know that we too will follow him and burst forth into resurrection life into eternal life. That's a hope and comfort of anyone who has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me read this, 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty. But now Christ is risen from the dead, and he has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, 
Afterward, those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, and then when he puts an end to all rule and authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. It's such a comfort for you and I as believers. And, and so here, this prophetic, you know, this prophecy, it has its ultimate fulfillment. Micah is looking ultimately to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and for your and my eternal life, our resurrection for you and I as believers. But now in chapter 3, Micah switches from proclaiming judgment against the people, and now he's going to talk to the rulers and the prophets. Verse 1, And I said, Hear now, O heads of Jacob, and you rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice, you who hate good and love evil, who strip the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who also eat the flesh of my people, flay their skin from them, break their bones, and chop them in pieces like meat for the pot, like flesh in the cauldron? Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not hear them. He will even hide his face from them at that time, because they have been evil in their deeds." You know, being leaders over God's people, the rulers should have known justice. Instead, it says they hate good and they love evil. You know what the Bible says about people like that? Isaiah in 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. I look around in our culture and there's a lot of people that are saying good is bad and bad is good. And, they, they, and the, God's word to them is, whoa, there's judgment coming. Micah here is picturing these wicked rulers as spiritual cannibals feeding off of the people. You know, in the New Testament, Paul describes them as savage wolves, not sparing the flock of God. But basically, it's the same principle, same people. In the day of distress, these rulers would cry out to the Lord, but it would be too late He will not hear them. And now he speaks to the false prophets, verse 5. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who make my people stray, who chant peace while they chew with their teeth, but who prepare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore you shall have night without vision, and you shall have darkness without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be dark for them. So the seers shall be ashamed, and the diviners abashed. Indeed, they shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. These false prophets, they were leading God's people astray by proclaiming peace to them, when in fact, because of their sin, they were at enmity with God. And it says that they proclaim peace while they chew with their teeth. It's kind of a weird verse, right? Well, what, basically what it means, it doesn't mean that they spoke while they were eating, you know, chewing with their mouth open or talking with their mouth. Well, you know what I'm saying. My mom used to always say it. Don't eat with your, no, you were supposed to eat with your mouth open. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> One of your mothers helped me out here. <laughs> don't talk, don't eat with, chew with your mouth. Okay. <laughs> well, if you see me doing that, you'll know that I didn't get the message very good. <laughs> Well, that's not what he's saying here. Basically, what he's saying is these prophets, they'll prophesy, and it's a false prophesy, prophecy, but they'll prophesy as long as they're being fed, as long as someone's paying them, in other words. As long as they're getting something out of it, they'll prophesy. 
But when someone doesn't feed them because they consider them false prophets, they prepare war against them. In other words, they proclaim judgment against all who dared to call them for what they were. So as long as they were getting fed, they'd keep prophesying these false prophecies. But if someone called them on the carpet, uh, you, you know, they'd proclaim judgment against them. Well, Micah says those prophets would be without vision. When destruction did come, they will not have seen it coming. They will be ashamed for having prophesied falsely. You know, Paul writes about the last days, and for you and I as believers, the, 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 the last days I think are going to take many people by surprise, but they're not supposed to take you and I by surprise. We're supposed to have our. We're supposed to be watchful. We're supposed to be reading our scriptures. We're supposed to be seeing the signs of the times and recognizing that Jesus is coming back soon. We're supposed to be ready. Well, these people, and I think there's going to be many people in our society too, in our culture, that when judgment comes, it's just going to completely catch them by surprise. And here now in verse eight, very interesting. Micah says this. You know, and you might read this and might think he's being arrogant, but, but let's look at it. Verse 8, But truly I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord and of justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. See, now he's, he's boldly contrasting himself with the false prophets. And Micah's basically saying that he was prophesying in the power of the Holy Spirit, full of power, you know, full of strength. Full of justice, the word means judgment. You, you, could, you could translate that discernment, making the right judgments. Full of might, which really means bravery or valor, and, and I think you could also translate that boldness. See, Micah is speaking about what every believer here, anyone that has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ can be, you know, being filled with the Holy Spirit, having that strength, that discernment, and boldness. It's interesting, you know, I don't have any, like a, a bigger dose of the Holy Spirit because I'm the pastor. I, I appreciated what Kelly shared, you know. I'm nothing special, I'm just there ministering to the people. Sometimes people look at pastors or leaders and they go, well, they have this special anointing. No, no, I don't have a special anointing. All of you have the same Holy Spirit I have. Are you exercising? Are you walking in the strength of the Holy Spirit? Are you using the discernment of the Holy Spirit? Are you bold in the power of the Holy Spirit? That's, and that's what Micah is saying here. You know, we, we've started these upper room uh, gatherings. I, I, I didn't know what better name to call them, so I call them the upper room gatherings, which basically we just gather once a month here at church on Sunday evenings. Some very simple worship, some very simple prayer, and then just seeking the Holy Spirit. Just seeking just his discernment, seeking his power, his boldness, and just asking him just to fill us. That's all it is. It's, it's nothing weird. It's just that's what it is. And, and it's there for this purpose. I want to encourage our, us as a fellowship in this way. You know, you have the same power available to make the right judgments or to use discernment as I or any other believer has. You do. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. You can speak boldly as God's ambassadors. You know, in John chapter 20, Jesus was talking to his disciples. And it was pretty close to before his, his uh, resurrection, I mean his, uh, his crucifixion. I think John 20, I'm trying to think of it after his crucifixion before. But he said to his disciples, 
He said, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. It says, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And you could maybe go like, wow, they have some special power, some special anointing. But you know, each one of us, if you have a born-again relationship with Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit in you, you are authorized as God's ambassador to speak words of comfort to those. Someone comes to you, they confess, they say, you know, I just want to share, I've been sinning in this area, and you can lead them in a prayer of repentance, whatever, and you have the authority as God's ambassador to say to that person, you know what, your sins are forgiven. Not that you've forgiven them, but you have the, you have the authority of Jesus Christ to proclaim that they're forgiven. That's what Jesus is talking about, by the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside you. But you also have that same power to boldly say, hey, you know what? The way you're living your life, there's judgment coming. If you don't turn your heart to Jesus Christ, there's an eternity of hell waiting. You have that authority. It's really interesting to me. I read this article, and it's probably more for pastors, but it's addressed to pastors, but I really don't think it's just pastors. I think it's for all Christians. But it was written by a lesbian a former lesbian. She had spent 30 years as a lesbian, and uh, she's now a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. Let me read this to you. It's from her. It says, Dear pastors, there are things I urgently need for you to know, and there are things that I desperately need you to tell me. I shudder to think where, I, uh, where I'd be today if my pastor had not been bold enough to tell me the truth regarding homosexuality, a lifestyle in which I lived for more than 30 years. Pastors, please take time out of your busy schedule to read my humble plea. First, I need you to tell me in no uncertain terms that homosexuality is sin. Show me what the Bible says and tell me that the word of God is eternal and does not change with the times. Please don't tell me that you won't address it or that you don't have an opinion, because if you don't speak up, I'm going to think that it's all right and will be headed for an eternity in hell. Pastors, when I come to you seeking answers, I need you to boldly speak the truth in love. My salvation depends on it. Next, please let me know that Jesus' death on the cross was enough to cover any sin I have committed, including that of homosexuality. Please tell me that every sin, no matter how minor or major it seems, is an affront to God. If you don't, I will feel like my sin, because it feels more embarrassing or shocking, is harder for God to forgive than the others, and I will be left with the wrong impression that homosexuality is the unforgivable sin. It's not. And last, I need you to tell me to repent. Please tell me that true Christianity calls for genuine repentance of all sin, including homosexuality. And pastors, if I try to make excuses to live in my sin, stand firm because my eternal destiny hinges on it. And then, and this is so very important, tell me that God's power, mercy, and grace are more than enough for me to live in an absolute freedom. If you don't, I will think that homosexuality is the only sin for which God's power isn't enough. It is. There's more to this letter, but... It's written to pastors, but you know, that applies to each one of us. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside you. You know, the difference is some people aren't filled. They're not walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what I'm trying to encourage you to do. Um, but each of us, we can speak words of comfort 
And we can speak words of warning using that discernment and that boldness of the Holy Spirit. Verse 9, he continues. So now, now Micah, he's just shared, you know, I'm full of the Holy Spirit and, and I'm telling you this in verse 9. He says, now hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who abhor injustice, excuse me, who abhor justice and pervert all equity, who build up Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with iniquity. Her heads judge for a bribe, her priests teach for pay, and her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? No harm can come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed like a field. Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruins, and the mountain of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. I don't know if you can sense it, but I, I can just hear Micah's renewed boldness after he you know, wrote verse 8. The people themselves... I mean, ultimately, everybody's responsible for their own lives, right? The people themselves were guilty of their sin, but the rulers and the prophets of Israel should have corrected them. They should have said, hey, what you're doing is wrong. You're going the wrong way. But they themselves were in sin themselves. They should not have led others astray. And because of that, they're now going to incur a much stricter judgment. And so because of them... Zion would be plowed like a field, and Jerusalem would become a heap of ruins. The mountain of the temple, which Mount Moriah, would like bare hills of the forest. And this was all fulfilled in the captivities. But then again, God's a merciful God. And God has promised, you're going into captivity, but I'm going to bring you back. And God has been faithful to his word. You know, this morning... You know, out of all that I've shared with you, I don't know how the Holy Spirit's going to use it in your life, but one of the things that really impressed me was just that whole, just studying about the remnant. Because I think it's going to be harder and harder for you and I to stand as firm as believers in our, in, in, in our country, in, in the society, in our generation. It's become harder and harder. And I just want to encourage you to remain faithful, to remain steadfast to the Lord. Stay in his word. Stay in fellowship. It's, it's so important for you and I. And be, you know, be open and transparent with one another. That's one of the goals of this church. We try to, we try to just be ourselves. We're not, we're not, it's not a fancy church. I, you know, I don't show up in a, in a fancy car, fancy clothes. And, you know, it, we're just plain people. We love Jesus. And uh, so I just want to encourage you in that. And then I also just want to encourage you to live in the fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit. I can't, I can't reiterate that enough because it's available for each one of us so i want to encourage you in that so that's the end of the chapters dealing with god's judgment i mean there'll be a few more allusions to it in micah but the next chapters uh, the next portion of the book of micah is who is like god consoling his people and there's some wonderful prophecies that we'll be starting to take a look at next week so i just want to encourage you in that why don't you stand up and let's go to the lord in prayer and just ask his blessing upon this morning Father, I thank you so much for your word. Lord, I thank you for, uh, Lord, just the bluntness and the truthfulness. Lord, uh, we see that you judged your people, Lord. Uh, Judgment begins in the house of God, and we see that, Lord. We see that with these people, and Lord, we know that it's true even in our own lives. And so, Father, we thank you for that reminder this morning. Lord, I pray that, uh, Father, that we would be those that would be the remnant that, that stand firm to the end till your return, Father. 
And Lord God, I also uh, just pray for each one of us, Lord, that, that Lord, we would not neglect those gifts that are within us, Father, that we might seek that, that, uh, that filling of your Holy Spirit, Lord God. Um, I thank you that we all have, those of us that have a relationship with you, have the Holy Spirit, but Lord, I pray that we would walk in the power of your Spirit. And this morning, Lord, I just pray your blessing upon your people. Lord, I ask that as we finish up this, this year, Lord God, that, Father, that we would just be determined to be more in love with you and more committed to you in this coming year. And so I thank you for this day, and I just pray your blessing on your people now. It's in Jesus' name, amen.